Section 5 of The Book of the Bush. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Chessy. The Book of the Bush by George Dunderdale. Section 5 Wreck of the Convict Ship Neva on King's Island. She sailed from Cork on January the 8th, 1835. B. H. Peck, Master, Dr. Stevenson, R.N., Surgeon. She had on board 150 female prisoners and 33 of their children, nine free women and their 22 children, and a crew of 26. Several ships had been wrecked on King's Island, and when a vessel approached it, the mate of the watch warned his men to keep a bright lookout. He said, King's Island is inhabited by Anthropophagi, the bloodiest man-eaters ever known. And if you don't want to go to pot, you had better keep your eyes skinned. So the lookout man did not go to sleep. Nevertheless, the Neva went ashore on the Harbinger Reef on May the 13th, unshipped her rudder, and parted into four pieces. Only nine men and thirteen women reached the island. They were nearly naked and had nothing to eat, and they wandered along the beach during the night, searching amongst the wreckage. At last they found a puncheon of rum, upended it, stove in the head, and drank. The thirteen women then lay down on the sand close together and slept. The night was very cold, and Robinson, an apprentice, covered the women as well as he could with some pieces of sail and blankets soaked with salt water. The men walked about the beach all night to keep themselves warm, being afraid to go inland for fear of the cannibal blackfellows. In the morning they went to rouse the women, and found that seven of the thirteen were dead. The surviving men were the master, B. H. Peck, Joseph Bennett, Thomas Sharp, John Watson, Edward Calhope, Thomas Hines, Robert Ballard, John Robinson, and William Kindery. The women were Ellen Galvin, Mary Stating, Anne Cullen, Rosa Helland, Rose Dunn, and Margaret Drury. For three weeks these people lived almost entirely on shellfish. They threw up a barricade on the shore, above high-water mark to protect themselves against the cannibals. The only chest that came ashore unbroken was that of Robinson the Apprentice, and in it there was a canister of powder. A flint musket was also found among the wreckage, and with the flint and steel they struck a light and made a fire. When they went down to the beach in search of shellfish, one man kept guard at the barricade and looked out for the blackfellows. His musket was loaded with powder and pebbles. Three weeks passed away before any of the natives appeared, but at last they were seen approaching along the shore from the south. At the first alarm all the shipwrecked people ran to the barricade for shelter, and the men armed themselves with anything in the shape of weapons they could find. But their main hope of victory was the musket. They could not expect to kill many cannibals with one shot, but the flash and report would be sure to strike them with terror and put them to flight. By this time the diet of shellfish had left them all weak and emaciated, 
skeletons only just alive. The anthropophagi would have nothing but bones to pick. Still, the little life left in them was precious, and they resolved to sell it as dear as they could. They watched the savages approaching. At length they could count their number. They were only eleven all told, and were advancing slowly. Now they saw that seven of the eleven were small, only piccaninnies. When they came nearer, three out of the other four were seen to be lubras, and the eleventh individual then resolved himself into a white savage, who roared out, Mates, ahoy! The white man was Scott the sealer, who had taken up his abode on the island with his harem, three Tasmanian gins, and seven children. They were the only permanent inhabitants. The cannibal blacks had disappeared and continued to exist only in the fancies of the mariners. Scott's residence was opposite New Year's Island, not far from the shore. There he had built a hut and planted a garden with potatoes and other vegetables. Flesh meat he obtained from the kangaroos and seals. Their skins he took to Launceston in his boat, and in it he brought back supplies of flour and groceries. He had observed dead bodies of women and men, and pieces of a wrecked vessel cast up by the sea, and had travelled along the shore with his family looking for anything useful or valuable which the wreck might yield. After hearing the story and seeing the miserable plight of the castaways, he invited them to his home. On arriving at the hut, Scott and his lubras prepared for their guests a beautiful meal of kangaroo and potatoes. This was their only food as long as they remained on King's Island, for Scott's only boat had got adrift, and his flour, tea, and sugar had been all consumed. But kangaroo beef and potatoes seemed a most luxurious diet to the men and women who had been kept alive for three weeks on nothing but shellfish. Scott and his hounds hunted the kangaroo and supplied the colony with meat. The liver of the kangaroo, when boiled and left to grow cold, is a dry substance, which, with the help of hunger and a little imagination, is said to be as good as bread. In the month of July 1835, heavy gales were blowing over King's Island. For fourteen days, the schooner Elizabeth, with whalers for Port Ferry, was hove to off the coast, standing off and on, six hours one way and six hours the other. Acres, the captain and his mate, got drunk on rum and water daily. The cook of the industry was on board the Elizabeth, the man whom Captain Block was flogging when his crew seized him and threw him overboard. The cook also was now pitched overboard for having given evidence against the four men who had saved him from further flogging. At this time also Captain Friend, of the whaling-cutter Sarah Ann, took shelter under the lee of New Year's Island, and he pulled ashore to visit Scott the sealer. There he found the shipwrecked men and women, whom he took on board his cutter and conveyed to Launceston, except one woman and two men. It was then too late in the season to take the whalers to Port Ferry. Captain Friend was appointed Chief District Constable at Launceston. All the constables under him were prisoners of the crown, receiving half a dollar a day. 
He was afterwards collector of customs at the Mersey. In November 1835, the schooner Elizabeth returned to Launceston with 270 tons of oil. The share of the crew of a whaling vessel was one-fiftieth of the value of the oil and bone. The boat steerer received one-thirtieth, and of the headman some had one-twenty-fifth, others one-fifteenth. In this same year, 1835, Batman went to Port Phillip with a few friends and seven Sydney blackfellows. On June the 14th he returned to Van Diemen's Land, and by the 25th of the same month he had compiled a report of his expedition, which he sent to Governor Arthur, together with a copy of the grant of land executed by the black chiefs. He had obtained three copies of the grant signed by three brothers Jagger Jagger, by Bangori, Yen Yen, Moorwhip, and Marmorella. The area of the land bought by Batman was not so weighed with precision, but it was of great extent, like infinite space, whose center is everywhere and circumference nowhere. And in addition, he took up a small patch of 100,000 acres between the bay and the Barwon, including the insignificant side of Geelong, a place of small account even to this day. Batman was a long-limbed Sydney native, and he bestrode his real estate like a colossus. But King William was a bigger colossus than Batman. He claimed both the land and the blacks, and ignored the crown grant. Next, John Faulkner and his friends chartered the schooner Enterprise for a voyage across the Straits to Australia Felix. He afterwards claimed to be the founder of Melbourne. He could write and talk everlastingly, but he had not the robur and us triplex suitable for a sea robber. Seasickness nearly killed him, so he stayed behind while the other adventurers went and laid the foundation. They first examined the shores of Western Port, then went to Port Phillip Bay and entered the river Yarra. They disembarked on its banks, ploughed some land, sowed maize and wheat, and planted two thousand fruit trees. They were not so grasping as bad men, and each man packed out a farm of only one hundred acres. These farms were very valuable in the days of the late boom, and are called the city of Melbourne. Bad men wanted to oust the newcomers. He claimed the farms under his grant from the Jagger Jaggers. He squatted on Batman's hill, and looked down with evil eyes on the rival immigrants. He saw them clearing away the scrub along Flinders Street and splitting posts and rails all over the city from Spencer Street to Spring Street, regardless of the fact that the ground under their feet would be, in the days of their grandchildren, worth three thousand pounds per foot. Their bullock drays were often balked in Elizabeth Street, and they made a corduroy crossing over it with red gum locks. Some of these locks were dislodged quite sound fifty years afterwards by the tramway company's workmen. End of section five.